all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors about all things value creation within startups. Today, I am talking to Jim Douglas, who is a partner over at Fulcrum Equity based out of Atlanta. Fulcrum has had several funds, have been in business for, I think, over two decades now, and is uh, deploying capital and, and growth companies. Uh, Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So how many funds, how many years, AUM, what's Fulcrum look like? Yeah, so we're investing out of our fourth fund. Actually, we just did our last deal out of our fourth fund, which is a $275 million fund. Um, we kind of invest in two, th- two sectors majorly, and it has a, to do with our operating backgrounds. Two of my partners and myself are, have, kind of have technology operating backgrounds, so we focus on SaaS and tech-enabled services businesses that are kind of two or three million in recurring revenue growing 50 to hundred percent on the low end to around 10 million on the high end. Um, and we can cut a check as little as five, six million for that smaller company or as much as 20, 25 million for that larger company we can have 35 million or so in any given company. So we can be a good partner through all the life cycle of the company. Uh, so that's the B2B SaaS and tech enabled services side. And we're growing those up to sell them up the food chain or recap them to larger PE funds, sometimes strategics. Um, and then on the, the other thing we do is healthcare tech and services. The healthcare tech looks a lot like B2B SaaS, uh, but healthcare services are typically multi-site healthcare, providing services that, that are a lower cost setting outside of the hospital. Our businesses are typically two to 10 million EBITDA when we get involved with them. They're platforms for organic growth and acquisition. Uh, so we'll build out a multi-site healthcare uh, discipline, whether it's home health and hospice or behavioral or endovascular, any kind of discipline where it makes more sense to do the procedures outside the hospital. We like those kind of businesses. And we're trying to grow those from two to 10 in EBITDA towards 20, 30 million in EBITDA and sell them up the food chain to larger P funds again. So when you were modeling out this fund uh, or your partners were modeling out this fund, um, was it difficult to kind of get the fund performance you needed when you looked at um, you know, businesses that trade on revenue versus businesses that trade on EBITDA and kind of having that blend approach versus like a, a venture type fund that has pretty much all tech companies that have similar type revenue um, measured, you know, the companies are measured the same way from a valuation perspective. Yeah, no, you definitely have to, it's, it's interesting because you, you look at them entirely differently. Um, the healthcare services side is, we typically own 40 to 80% of those. They're more PE type businesses, whereas tech is pure growth capital. They're not making money while we own them. You know, we're, we kind of burn a dollar to create a dollar of ARR. So definitely different. Um, so you just have to have those metrics in your head of what you're, how you approach those businesses. I tell you, looking at them both gives you a nice perspective because it, it helps you think about more of a growth basis, a growth orientation that we have for tech having that same mindset for healthcare. I don't do those deals, but when my partners are listening to my deals or we're listening to theirs, 
kind of the cross pollination of the two is, is, is helpful. Now, from an investor perspective, it definitely, the institutions sometimes every now and then we've had one go, ah, I, I want just a pure healthcare, a pure tech. Right. Right. And, and we go, you know, it's like, there's enough people that like the balance that the size funds we're raising, our fifth fund's going to be 300, 350 million, which we're raising, starting to raise the end of this year. So those size funds, we can find plenty of investors that like the diversity. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes the healthcare is stronger than the tech, sometimes tech stronger than healthcare, depending on the, what's going on in the market. Yeah, and I would think the healthcare piece would almost hedge any type of risk volatility on the on the on the tech side. Well, both. I mean, yeah, I thought that too until uh, COVID came along, and healthcare services <laughs> businesses that are based one hundred percent on what procedures you did in your office that day literally, you know, went to zero. Nothing. <laughs> Whereas your SaaS businesses still had that recurring revenue base, and as you saw in the public markets, all that's wiped away now. But in the public markets, the SaaS businesses got great recognition during COVID. So for the first time, um, it, it, you kind of saw the, the benefit of, of having a balance. How do you think, and then you, you talked a little bit about on the technology side, you talked a lot about um, you know, the, the B2B SaaS and the B2B tech-enabled services. For the listeners that don't know, can you explain a little bit more about what a tech enabled services is and how do you identify them in the marketplace? Yeah. So it's a broad definition, but, um, for example, in security, you see a lot of tech enabled services businesses. So they, they manage security businesses where they might have the technology underlying technology that allows them to detect a security incident, but an enterprise or small enterprise doesn't have the people to track that down and eradicate it and do everything they need to do associated with managing that risk. So you've got managed serve managed technology enabled services. So those are ones we like, by example, because they have a strong technology background. They just require a service component. They tend to, you know, be 60, 65, 60% margin, 70 if you're lucky. Um, so we'll look at for other areas for those kind of businesses. You see some in, in uh, logistics, you see some tech enabled services businesses there. And then, you know, you also see people call it tech enabled services and you look underneath it and you go, ah, that's long on services and short on tech. We'll stay away from mm -hmm. those because we don't want to be in just any, you know, on the tech side. We don't want to be in pure services businesses. We do on the healthcare side. So you just have to look underneath the, the day to day of what they're providing to their customers and, and, and see how are they leveraging technology to have fewer people in that service, whatever it is they're providing over time versus, you know, just being a pure body shop yeah and the services component um or excuse me the technology component of a tech enabled service that is more in your eyes correct me if i'm wrong at, to serve as a moat to bring down to to keep away competitors that could bring down margin compression over time like how do you think what's the importance of the technology like as yeah, opposed to that's, that's exactly. you know, I, i've got i've got a high margin i've got a high margin service company with you know that no one else is doing but there's no technology technology for two reasons a it drives efficiency over time so you can always be providing your service at a lower total cost of ownership to your to your customer and also if you're growing really fast you can scale it faster. The problem with services businesses, you can only scale at the rate you can hire people, right? So if it's tech enabled mm -hmm. and you're getting real operating leverage out of a platform, um, then A, you're going to have a better moat, B, your customers are going to be more sticky, and C, you're going to be able to scale it easier. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm going to ask, and this is going to be, you know, the question you're going to hate me to ask me for. So like, what kind of valuation difference do you see between a high growing tech enabled service business as a rule versus a SaaS business? Um, it has a lot, to, everything to do with gross margin. So like mm -hmm. your best SaaS businesses are kind of 85% plus gross margin, right? Mm -hmm. And your, and your best tech enabled services businesses are probably 65%. So you can kind of take that mm -hmm. third difference and go, I typically see about a third difference in multiples. So if, Got it. Okay. So whatever yeah. the multiples is about a third different on that side. Yeah. And it all depends on growth. You know, multiples are all based on growth rate. But if you took two businesses, one tech-enabled service, 60% margin, one 85% margin SaaS business that's growing the exact same, I bet right. you when you look at it, what? Well, I'm going to say this, and I'll probably offend somebody out there, but I've, and I've, I'll just say I've made the mistake myself once, so I try not to make mistakes twice. Too many people value tech-enabled services businesses the same way they value SaaS businesses, and you can't. Right. They only do it one time. I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if they do, yeah. they're not raising very many funds. But it just right. you got you got to be really careful. They're totally different, and they're great businesses, but they're they're not valued the same for the same group. Yeah. And especially uh, in toppy markets, right? Like, I mean, where everyone's putting money in anything that has revenue and they're like, well, the technology is going to come down the road. If there really isn't a roadmap there that is visible or you see any leverage, that could be really, really disappointing. Right. And it all has to do with the ultimate EBITDA margins a business can have, right? In our lifespan, mm -hmm. we don't see much EBITDA, but, the, uh, but if you have a 60% tech-enabled service business growing fast or you have a 85, that, that 60% tech enabled service business is probably going to end up at scale 25% EBITDA businesses. If you have an 85% SaaS business at mm -hmm. scale, probably going to end up with 40% gross uh, EBITDA margins, right? right? So back back again to that, okay, there's about a you know, third, 30 to 40% difference in the, the ultimate EBITDA generation of those two businesses. And you got to recognize mm -hmm. that and you got to you can't put the same growth rate, multiple on it, regardless of whether the growth rate's the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the healthcare services side, how do you think about valuing those? Um, you know, that, that, that's a, we all try to get multiple arbitrage. It's, that word tends to go away when markets are really bad. But, I mean, I mean it's really hot, like they've been on the tech side. But um, on the healthcare side, we're typically valuing a, business with low EBITDA and kind of the five, six, seven times multiple. So mm -hmm. if we got, if we got in a, in a good platform and it had two or 3 million in EBITDA that we were going to grow organically and through acquisition, say it's a multi-site healthcare called home health, for example, we would mm -hmm. try to, we'd try to value it in that range getting in. Now, when we get that business above 10 million in EBITDA, 10 to 20 million, you see, you know, kind of if you're growing decently, kind of 10 to 12x EBITDA yeah. multiples. So we try to make sure we start low enough because we're comfortable doing that in our platform. You know, if it's a great platform with an awesome team, we've definitely started at 7x. We, we, right. You know, we just put an offer in on one lost but <laughs> at that level. We were paying a lot for a platform, but it's a great platform. So it all mm -hmm. depends. But some, you know, mid to... Uh, slightly above mid single digit multiple. Got it. Great. And tell me about your background. How'd you go from operator to, to VC? 
Yes, I, I started my equity. yeah. I started my career at KPMG as a bean counter, which I love that job. Actually, I was uh, did that for seven years and got to see a lot of different businesses. But I left there to go to be the number two guy at a public healthcare business, just healthcare billing and healthcare software. Fast growing, we did a lot of acquisitions. It was fun. I was the number two CFO, and then I got after there a couple of years. I got the opportunity to be the CFO of a business in Atlanta that was moving to Atlanta called Check Free. It was online bill pay for banks. It's now owned by Pfizer, but it had gone public in 1998, and um, and I was just joining it then. And you know, I was paying my bills online, so I could see that that was kind of something that was really going to take off. When I joined, I think we had 50,000 bill pay subscribers. I think there's probably a hundred million bill pay subscribers now. Um, the, um, so that was, that was fun. And that got me into, while I was there, I ran another, I ran a payments business that we, another payments business we had. Um, and then just dying to kind of just run my own thing outside of a big public company. Um, and, uh, went to run a credit decisioning analytics business in Atlanta called BSI. We built that and sold it to TransUnion. It was a mid single digits business when I got involved and, you know, we had a good run with that and sold it. And that, I was like, okay, I want to keep doing, I want to do that again. I want to find another single digit one and grow it. Um, my second one failed miserably as you guessed. So, um, that was, that was a learning experience. And then the third one was in the lo- loyalty space again, kind of mid single digits when I got involved with it and we grew that one and we sold it to immerse it with our largest competitor to get, to be, create the leader in the space, uh, loyalty programs for banks and airlines. And we ultimately sold it to Rocky Ton. Um, and after that, I was looking for another single-digit revenue company to grab and grow. And, and Fulcrum, I'd known Frank for a long time, my partner, Frank Dalton. I'd known Jeff. Um, and they were looking for another partner. And today, I do the same thing. I'm working with mid-single-digit companies, something between 2 or $3 million and $10 million in revenue when I get involved. And um, I'm kind of doing the same thing. I just don't manage people. Right. I yeah. just, I wake up every day. <laughs> I'm thinking about my companies. I'd like working on them. I don't want to just show up to board meetings. I want to be involved in them. I don't want to run them. I don't want to manage people, but I, I like, I, I get to do all the parts that, that I enjoy doing. I'm not saying it's all rosy. This is definitely a hard business. Um, but, um, that's kind of it. Awesome. And how would you describe Fulcrum as it pertains to, if you look at like a coastal venture capitalist versus Fulcrum on your tech side, I mean, I understand there's a services, healthcare services differentiation, but like, you know, I would consider Fulcrum more of a growth equity player more than a VC. Would you agree with me? Yeah, we call it growth equity. To your point, everybody gives it a different name. I, you know, I think yeah, I used to say I'm the worst at deploying capital because I can't stand putting too much capital on a company. Mm-hmm. And, and that gets done daily, right? big rounds right. don't they and it's it's more we have this mindset of on the tech side i'll burn a dollar to create i'll burn a dollar to create a dollar of ar right because a dollar of ar is worth on a growing company growing 50 to 100 percent, which is all the ones we focus on dollar of ar is worth seven eight nine times on exit at scale and if we're mm-hmm. we need to make four or five times our money. So if we're burning a dollar to create a dollar, we're in a good, in a good place. So we, we have a very capital efficient view of the world. We don't get involved in things that are going to have intentionally D E and F rounds. You won't ever see that. So, mm-hmm. you know, our, most of our businesses, we're looking at them going, this is a business. I can burn a dollar to create a dollar as it gets towards 20, 20, 30 million in revenue. 
I could, I, it can cross into profitability and become more of a rule of 40 plus company. Um, so we just kind of have that capital efficient mindset. And if something doesn't meet that, you can tell up front, it's going to raise a bunch, need a bunch of capital. We just kind of stay away from it. We don't do any consumer stuff. Um, they, that requires a lot of capital. Everything's B2B kind of low capital. efficient. Have business. Ever, yeah. Have you ever put in money into a company thinking it's going to go down the growth equity path and then the founder decides he wants to go down the venture path? No, not from not from a budget perspective, but from a cap stack perspective. No, never have. I mean, a lot of so much of diligence is getting, you know, you, you start off. Do I like the company in the space? And then you spend a ton of time on do I like the founder and, and are we aligned on how we think about growing a business? And, and you'll ferret mm-hmm. that out real quick. I mean, if it's got a high burn rate, we're just not going to ever get into it. We, we, we yeah. want to we want that that alignment of, I hate to keep coming back to it, but burn a dollar to create a dollar. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a ton of metrics. Obviously we all look at CAC, TV, dot, dot, dot. But usually if you have a reasonable gross margin product, um, your, your product is sticky. and doesn't have technical debt issues that are requiring too much R and D. Uh, you've got good retention, um, and uh, you know, reasonable, you can grow a business at 50 to hundred percent under a burn a dollar to create a dollar. It's just where they're out of line is when your margin's too low, your retention's too low. And then it all starts to show up in the numbers because they're having to burn, you know, having to burn too much to grow the business. Mm-hmm. So all that's, all that yeah. is knowable before you ever kind of decide to partner with somebody. When are you, uh, when you, are you, have you started raising your next fund? Uh, we are going to, before the end of the year, have our first close. You know, we, in this business, you're always, you need to always stay on top of your existing investors, letting them know where you are, when you're going to be back in market. So we've been telling people we thought we'd be back in market by the end of the year. Uh, we've been talking to some that have been following us over the years that, you know, people, large institutions will track you for two or three funds before they invest. So, so we've been having those kind of conversations all year long and we want to have our first close here before the end of the year. Awesome. Great. Well, Jim, it was so great to have you on the, the show. Um, before I usually wrap up, I asked a couple canned questions. What's your favorite book? Oh, you're going to, it's, it's going to be a football book. All Actually, right. no, I'm not probably not that I like bleeding orange, which was the home Depot book. I thought that was really interesting. I like those kind of things. Right. And what was the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? Uh, inspect what you expect. I'm just, I, uh, I, I tell, I tell what you expect, you know, it's like, he's like, if you really, okay. whatever you're thinking is going to happen, just make sure you're inspecting the heck out of it. Cause it's, if you're not asking the question, then there's going to be a lot, a lot less pressure felt on that. Yeah. Or else you just, you know, are throwing dirt on it. Right. <laughs> I've been in a situation where you see things and you, you know, you expect things to go the other way, but you might, you, you know, it might be a situation where you don't want to, because you're so like gung ho on, you know, doing the deal. You're so pregnant with the deal anyway, that you just kind of want to throw dirt on it and hopefully yeah. it works out. And it usually always backfires on me. Yeah. <clears throat> Jim, thank you so much for coming on everybody. We drop a episode every Tuesday. Uh, we're on all major platforms, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. And if you like it, please share, like, subscribe, share with a friend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.